the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, it, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he pinned me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If if Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mention a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, J.P. John Paz, and we have two very special guests today. They are called, of course, the authors of the Wrestlers Wrestlers, the Masters of the Craft of Professional Wrestling. We have Mr. Dan Murphy and Brian Young. Guys, how you doing? Doing great. Thank you very much for having us on today. Yeah, doing fantastic. Thanks so much. No problem. And as soon as I, you know, got a hold of this book, I got a hold of the ECW Press, uh, my buddy Susanna over there, and I was like, man, this book just looks awesome because it's kind of what I love about wrestling the guys that are the masters of the craft the, you know the bret hearts of the world the daniel bryan's of the world those type of guys that i love so dan i guess i'll start with you just give a little bit of your background before we get into the book yeah and and, and as i do just very quickly it, it's great to hear you say that um the idea of doing a book on wrestlers wrestlers it's not necessarily the biggest names it's not necessarily the guys who have held the titles although we do talk about a lot of people who have um, so it's very good to hear that there are people who appreciate the kind of masters of the craft, the people who have the nuances that we really kind of focus on. Uh, my background is for 22 years, I was with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Um, I was there from about 97 until 2019. Um, during a lot of that time, I coordinated the PWI 500, the ranking of the top 500 wrestlers every year, and uh, kind of established the Female 50, which became the Women's 100. Uh, so I did a lot of uh, work for Pro Wrestling Illustrated through the years and uh, and worked on uh, the book Sisterhood of the Squared Circle uh, that came out in 2017 and now The Wrestlers Wrestlers. Nice. And how about you, Brian? Give us a little bit of your background. Well, I have absolutely zero background in wrestling, believe it or not. <laughs> um, I am just lucky enough to uh, have kind of wormed my way into this project with uh, with Dan, but uh, I've known Dan, God, most of our lives, 
And uh, my background is actually boxing is my specialty. I've done a lot of boxing writing and a historian of the sport. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm an an all-around nerd when it comes to history. So I do a lot of that. And, you know, I love wrestling, loved wrestling when I was a kid. But uh, this was my first, like, you know, little tiptoe into the world. So it's been exciting. Very cool. This is some great stuff. I feel like a lot of these guys, Sometimes we're underappreciated or undervalued because they're the guys that actually are the ones that are making the match look even better than you realize, making some of the guys look better than you realize. You know, the real wrestler is wrestler, as we're going to get into. But, Dan, when you first kind of started the idea of putting the book together, like, what was your thoughts? That you'd love these guys, that these these are your favorite type guys? Yeah, they are. They definitely are. I mean, the Brad Armstrongs of the world, the William Regals, uh, like you mentioned, Bret Hart, Kurt Angle, some of the guys at the top of the card, some of the guys at the bottom of the card. We even have a little section in there where we talk about the kind of thankless but vital role of enhancement talent or job guys. And I have some quotes from some of those guys like uh, Bad Boy Barry Hardy. Um, for me, I, I had this idea of doing a book about uh, wrestlers, wrestlers, the guys that, like a, a comics comic, comedian's comedian, uh, the guys that may not sell out. They're not Dane Cook selling out arenas, but they may be Dave Attell, who all the other comics are watching and, and think that that was the idea. And, and I was, it, it was kind of in the back of my mind for a while. And I met up with Brian. Uh, one of the things Brian hadn't mentioned yet, but he, he's a big historian with uh, Jack the Ripper. And he had given a lecture on Jack the Ripper, and he had started talking to me afterwards. He had the idea about doing a book uh, talking to a lot of the old-timers and the veterans. Uh, you know, every year we lose more and more people from this business. And he wanted to kind of talk to as many of them as possible and just preserve their uh, kind of oral history of wrestling. And when I mentioned my idea and his idea, uh, they, they kind of fit well together, talking to people about the guys that they like to work, the guys that they really respected most. And, again, he had such a, a passion and excitement that it really made me think, okay, this this might really be doable, and maybe there are people out there who'd like to read this. And uh, ECW Press jumped on board, and we were off and running. Brian, Jack the Ripper. Jeez, that's uh, pretty intense. Yeah, I love that's it. a little dark, I understand. <laughs> I love it, though. I have a friend of mine who's, like, obsessed with, like, serial killers and stuff. Like, it kind of worries me sometimes, like... You know, where is he at night, and what is he doing? So, yeah, I always, I always tell people it's it, it's when you know they're obsessed with serial killers, like publicly. You don't have to worry about it because they would hide that if there was something sketchy going on. Yeah, that is true, very true. And he always claims like, oh, I could catch a serial killer and all those stuff. So I wasn't sure if he had like a Dexter thing going on. No, no. I I I, uh, I, I study the serial killers that we'll never catch, unfortunately. Gotcha. We'll never know who Jack was, but. Always makes for fun, uh, fun lectures. So, Brian, you said you're more of like a boxing historian, but kind of what draws you to this side of wrestling, like the real good workers, the real work rate guys? Well, well, like Dan was saying with the origins of the book, you know, he had his idea, and I was doing the lecture one night, and Dan showed up, and I was so excited. I ran over to him like, I don't care what happens. You can't leave when this lecture's over. i got to talk to you afterwards because I had had an idea for a book for him to write. It wasn't have anything to do with me. It was, this is for my friend Dan. He's the wrestling writer. And it was right after Dick Byer passed away. And uh, Dan and I are both from the Western New York area, as was the Destroyer. 
and it made me think that, you know, we lose so many of these guys and we don't know their, you know, their real inside takes on the business and how it was and what it took to be great. Because in any form of show business, you know, there's always those elite that stand out that are just so special. Everybody involved in it, you have to have respect for. But then there's those people that are so elite and what made them so great. And I wanted Dan to talk to people in the business to find out what it was. What was that extra spark? And luckily we were able to combine the ideas. You know, the oral history, which, you know, when you read the book, you'll see so much of it is stories and anecdotes and quotes from these people. And we talked to as many as we could, ranging, um, you know, in ages from people in their 80s to guys that are still going today. And that, as a historian, that's what fascinated me, that, you know, peeking behind the curtain and, you know, taking a look at the business through their eyes, because I'll never understand that. I, you know, no matter how big a fan you are, you're never going to understand that. But when you talk to them and you get the total insider version of, you know, here's what it took to be great and here's what made them great, you know, as a historian, you can't ask for anything more. It's just so fascinating. So, Dan, when you actually categories, like to me, I'm always like, okay, Fred and, and Benoit, and like you think of certain guys or you think of, you know, an old school guy like Dory Funk, you, you, know, you think of the great stuff. How do you break it down into the categories you did? Because that was something that kind of drew me first. I'm like, oh, that's great. Cause let's say I want to go to, you know, like ROH era or something, you know, like uh, more modern times. Or do I want to go old school? So how did you break it down into those categories? Basically, when we had the idea of the book, we, we kind of sketched out ideas of who we'd include, who, who were no-brainers. And then we really relied on our interviews to really kind of guide us the rest of the way, who else should be included and, and so on. Maybe we had some ideas that we thought might be the right people, and we'd ask around, what about this guy? What about this guy? And, and so on. And that kind of guided us. But the wrestling business as a whole just evolves. Um, you know, and, and right now, it, it evolves at like a supernova rate. It, it's so much different now than it was five years ago, let alone 10, 15, 20. Um, but you look at wrestling from the 30s, and we, we talk about Strangler Lewis in the book. And Strangler Lewis really, I mean, he really pioneered what they called at the time slam-bang wrestling, which was the new style of basically high spots and finishers. And it, it was, it was, he was the spot monkey of his day. And you don't think of that with Strangler Lewis. You know, you think of him as this old kind of turtle-looking, you know, old man. Um, but but he, he really kind of innovated a new style that helped propel the sport into the, the next generation. But anyway, you look at how wrestling has evolved from the 30s, and the 50s, 70s, 90s, today, and, and so on. It only made sense to kind of group people lightly by time uh, period and era, um, but also by what they brought to the table. You know, the, the people who were the, the great technicians and, and the bumpers and the, the psychologists. Because wrestling, the, the way we looked at the masters of the craft, it's not just purely technical wrestling ability. Um, definitely, I have an affinity for technical wrestling ability, and there's a lot of guys in the profiles who are expert technical wrestlers. But people like Jerry Lawler and Dusty Rhodes, who were never great technicians, but they had the nuances. They had the, the, the uh, way of carrying themselves, of connecting with the audience. 
that so many other wrestlers who have the technical ability will never master. They're, they're not the, the masters of the craft, really. Uh, so we, we kind of pulled everybody together, grouped them where we could, um, both by kind of how they're similar to their peers and chronologically, and uh, kind of developed our chapters that way. Yeah, I like how you know you you break it off in, into those founding fathers, then you go into the shooters and the bumpers and stuff. I just really liked how you do that because it kind of breaks it off for me too. Because I can be like, okay, I want to focus on this specific area. I'm going to read about these guys. Oh, then I can flick and go to the you know, Ring of Honor area, <laughs> read about Nigel and stuff. So I like the way it's broken off. Really, very good. Now, Thank you. I'm very glad to hear that. Now, Brian, when you're kind of thinking about it, I know wrestling you're not necessarily like a wrestling guy but when you break it off what era um as far as you know founding fathers where do you pick up and you kind of enjoy is it the all-time guys well i'll tell you i'm a wrestling guy now (laughs) um spending the better part of a year and a half two years on this project really um you know it relit that 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 flame of love i have for the business um that you know, I had gotten away from for so long. And just the respect for the people involved and, and, and the love I developed for it again has been... Re- I, give me a perfect example. I'm sitting here last night on YouTube in my apartment watching the, the original Sheik versus Tiger Jeep Singh in a steel cage match from 1975 in, in, uh, in uh, southern Ontario, Canada. And I say to pick up my phone and text Dan and say, Dan, I'm watching the Sheik versus Tiger Jeep thing in a cage. What the hell did you do to me? <laughs> and, and what was my answer? My answer was, um, I vastly improved your life. Enhanced your quality Enhanced, of life. Enhanced my quality. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't look at the text right now. But, um, <laughs> but as far as I, I love... Going back to it, it was, it was the air, the, you know, the childhood in me, the, the late seventies, early eighties, which is when I, you know, was watching wrestling as a kid, and talking to a lot of the people that were part of the business. Then it just, you know, there were times I felt like a little kid again. You know, the first time I talked to Terry Funk, I mean, I, you probably couldn't have got the smile off my face with plastic surgery afterwards. And it was just, I find myself becoming more interested in the origin of the Founding Fathers. But I, I, I'm totally down rabbit holes of watching, uh, you know, 70s NWA wrestling on YouTube constantly. I love it. And I love that you're getting back into it. Dan, good job, you know, getting him... Uh back into, you know, love for the business, love for the game. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm taking him out to Cauliflower Alley Club this year if it, uh, it happens. The uh, CAC reunion I go to every year in Las Vegas, the uh, kind of benevolent association for wrestlers, and uh, uh, Brian will be making his uh, debut trip there as long as it, it comes off as planned with COVID and everything. When is it scheduled for this year? It's normally in April. It's normally a couple weeks away from WrestleMania every year. Uh, but last year it got bumped back to September, it got bumped back to April, and now it got bumped back to uh, September of 2021. So it's supposed to be happening, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it all goes. Hopefully it'll all come together. Out in Vegas? Yeah, yeah. And for anyone who's listening, you know, if 
you know, check out the Cauliflower Alley Club online. Um, great organization, raises money for wrestlers who kind of need it. Um, you know, Kamala was one of the uh, recipients of some aid a, a couple of years back and, and several others. Some are public, some are prefer to keep it private. They don't like the world to know, you know, really where, where they are when their house fails or their finances run out. Uh, but it's a great organization. It does a lot to preserve the history of pro wrestling, and uh, it's, it's open to the public. Uh, you can become a member, and you can go out to uh, the CAC reunion. And I sit down every year. Well, I, I have. Uh, um, unfortunately, we lost one of them this year. I would sit at a table in the sports bar in the back of the Gold Coast Casino uh, with myself, uh, Pat LaProd, who I did the book Sisterhood of a Squared Circle with, Patterson, who has passed away, Jerry Briscoe, and Jim Ross. And we'd sit there, you know, having beers, and, and Pat would smoke his cigarettes, and they would just tell stories for hours. And, I mean, you soak up all of that history by, by kind of going to CAC, because anywhere you look, you know, to your left is Jake Roberts, to your right is Greg Valentine over there, Story Funk. Uh, it's just history everywhere, and it's, it's really amazing for uh, fans or for historians like me. Brian, you looking forward to going? Oh, I... Any chance to go to Vegas, I'm excited, first off. But uh, yeah, Vegas is my, my my home away from home. I love it there. But I'm I'm so excited to go to Cauliflower Alley. And uh, I kind of want to go back just for a second. I know we're here to talk about the wrestlers' wrestlers. But Dan had just mentioned the book he did with Pat LaProd, Sisterhood of the Squared Circle. And listen, anybody out there who hasn't picked that book up, you got to go get it. That book is amazing. I mean, it is the definitive history of women's wrestling, and it's phenomenal. And one of the criticisms we've actually gotten a little bit on this book was there was a lack of female inclusion. And the reason we kind of stayed away from it more was because they covered everything in the last book. And, you know, it would have looked weird rehashing what Dan had just done in the last book. So we were not meaning to slight women. We weren't doing that because... Dan promoted them in a phenomenal book, Sisterhood of the Squared Circle, that everyone should pick up, too. I agree. I, yes, <laughs> Dan, Dan does, too. Totally agree. As far as getting back to wrestlers, wrestler, one guy that really stood out to me, and I'm glad he's in here. I mean, obviously, he should be. But because I do a show with Kevin Sullivan, we always talk about WCW. We always talk about Brad Armstrong. Definitely, right? Wrestlers wrestler that maybe a lot of people don't realize is, the, is a wrestler's wrestler. Carried a lot of guys. I mean, a lot of guys look good. You know, yeah. It's funny, too, because Kevin Kevin Sullivan was one of the first people that I talked to with this book. Um, I called him up. Uh, I told him what the idea was. And we ended up doing two phone calls of about an hour, hour and 15 minutes each. You know, so one of those things where you say, ah, you know, I got, a, I got 20 minutes. And then we went and you know, said, so I'll tell you again tomorrow. We'll go over, you know, more. Uh, but I brought up the topic, and, you know, uh, wrestler's wrestler. And right away, first thing he said, his actual quote that's in the book is, you can't do a book about wrestler's wrestlers without a chapter on Brad Armstrong, which is just an amazing kind of bit of praise. I mean, Brad Armstrong, um, you know, he was he was a mid-card, lower mid-card guy for most of his career, and, and uh, Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW had some, you know, really failed gimmicks. Um, but was just an amazing technician, uh, an amazing hand made, you know, when he had to make somebody look good, he made them look like a million bucks. And when he had to go out there and, and steal the show, he could do that. 
And versatility in being able to do that is, is really a hallmark of a true wrestler's wrestler. And I was glad that we were able to include people like him and others um, who, who really kind of didn't get that promotional push, but really kind of deserve uh, at least an acknowledgement for, for their real skill and mastery of the craft. Brian, who's somebody in the book maybe, I think fans would be surprised, is covered in detail in the book? Yeah, there, there's a couple of them. Um that really stand out to me. But before I say that, I, you do a show with Kevin Sullivan. I, I think you him got to get on and do a show and debate this Yankees-Red Sox thing because he's got to get over that Red Sox thing. That Boston thing is just done. Come on. I know. Okay. I'm a big big Yankees fan. Every time we record, we do video, too, and he's got a, that Red Sox head on. I know. He's always got a Red Sox <laughs> shit on. we got to stop that. He said, he goes, oh, my daughter just bought me a new hat. I'm like, oh, God, come on. Yes. Come I'm going to send him a Yankees hat. Tell him. Yeah, he'll, he'll wear it. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> two of the, um, but back to the question, two of the names that are in the book that I think some people will be surprised made the book The Wrestlers Wrestlers. They'll, they'll know who they are, but they won't instantly think of them on that level. And it was Ted DiBiase and Bob Orton Jr. Because I think to a lot of fans, DiBiase is just remembered as the Million Dollar Man gimmick. And Orton Jr. especially is just thought of as, you know, Ace standing behind Piper on Piper's pit with the cast on his arm. And these two guys were both at the tail end of their careers when they got to WWF at the time, WWE. The body of work that they had and their skill level and their talent and their impact on the business before then, I think a lot of people reading this book aren't going to realize, well, because it depends on where you grew up in the country because of the way the territory system was. So those are the, you know, just off the top of my head, two guys that I'm really glad are in the book because I think people will be taking a second look at their careers when they read about them, and they'll be like, wow, I never realized that about Bob Orton Jr. And uh, he was that good. Dan told me one time when we were first talking about this that, he said, Bob Orton Jr. is one of the best damn workers that no one realizes is one of the best damn workers ever. Totally agree. He was he was awesome. He, quite the hand, for sure. Yeah. And, man, there's so many great guys in the book that, you know, you're thinking like, okay, let's go to Japan, and it's like Misawa Kawada. And, you know, you guys got even that covered. So, I mean, I, I, lo I love that. Uh, and New Japan. We talk about some of those guys in New Japan now. Um, up-and-coming guys that, are, you know, some of the newer fans might not know if they don't see New Japan Wrestling, like um, Zack Sabre and Jay White that are just mm -hmm. unbelievable performers. That uh, I'm glad we got to give shout-outs to, you know, current talent, too, in the book. Now, Dan, I feel like always in, in every generation, not necessarily just one guy that creates this great feud that – the wrestlers, wrestlers really comes out and they're really able to shine. Flair, Steamboat, Kawada, Misawa, Brett versus HBK, Daniel Bryan, aka Brian Danison versus Nigel. Is there a lot of that in your head as you kind of go through, like matching guys up, or you think every every guy really stands on their own? You know, I've always looked at it like they stand on their own, but yeah, I understand matching up. And the big three matchups that I immediately think of. Uh, Masao Kawada, um, Flair and Steamboat. The third one for me is AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels. Um, maybe because when I was writing for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, 
both in Ring of Honor and then in TNA, uh, I, I was kind of watching that match, you know, from you know ringside for so for so many times. Um, and those guys just delivered every single time, and they always seem to take, uh, you know, get something out of the other guy and take it to a new level. TNA even added Samoa Joe and had that match as a three-way, which is arguably the best match that TNA has ever promoted, you know, to date. Um, so yeah, there there are some that you know naturally show up. But I think the thing with a lot of these guys in the book, uh, you know, Kurt Angle, you know, to use some of the recent ones, Kurt Angle, Bret Hart, Daniel Bryan, um, they're guys who are just so good, but they've had great rivalries with multiple people. You know, like it's it's not so much the rivalry as it is that they have the talent that, that they bring to the table that elevates everybody and makes every match uh, a really watchable and memorable thing. Brian, when you look through and kind of look back, are you kind of loving feuds? Are you getting invested in these feuds? Uh, I do, actually. Um, especially the uh, the Briscoes and the Funks. Um, that's the feud that, that, that really got me going with this. Um, you know, Jack Briscoe uh, is another name that a lot of current modern fans might not know. Just about everybody we spoke to, when you would ask them about wrestlers, wrestlers, Briscoe was one of the first things that was mentioned. Um, and that's something that should come up. To, you know, a lot of people are going to complain about people we left on or off the lists in this book. It was really judged by the people we talked to. You know, we had the basics of who we knew was going to be there. You know, Lou says is going to be in a book like this. But the rest of it was dictated by talking to all these people and you know Sputnik Monroe was nowhere on our radar until we were talking to Ron Fuller who said okay you gotta do Sputnik and then we had like four other people say that so um the selection process really had a lot to do with the interviews but as far as the rivalries go I love them um it's great wrestling is great theater great showbiz great magic show it's every bit of entertainment rolled into one fantastic packages and you know your rivalries keep it going and keep it selling and keep it exciting and it really shows how especially when it's two masters working the rivalry like a steamboat flare i mean just that's you know how good wrestling can be absolutely and you mentioned Funk Briscoe, man, I still go back and watch some of it. I have some tapes I converted to DVDs, and you can watch them on YouTube. Man, they still hold up today. That good wrestling, quote unquote, work rate, and those guys weren't rest holds and you know what what people think of like when they think of old school wrestling. Funk and, and Briscoe, and man, those two could go. Yeah, and and it's funny Terry to this day. Whenever you say the name Jack Briscoe, he just gets quiet for a second and will say. I love Jack. I mean, you know, the, the the feelings are still there, the love that they had for each other, which is how they were able to work so well together. And it's weird to think about that because even, you know, as, as someone who talked to the, you know, to Terry and got all the details about it, I'll still watch those matches believing these two sons of bitches are trying to kill each other. And I know that just shows how good they are. They still good. make me believe. And a good professional rivalry, you know what I mean? They they really were great together. Oh yeah, and they made us believe. Um, 
which is which is I think you know one of the working titles for the book that I was thinking of calling it was they made us believe and we thought it was a little too cerebral people wouldn't realize what it was about but that's another thing about the masters of this craft is that you know for generations the public wasn't smart to the business and these people made us believe it they were so good and so believable that we believed it and the magic is still there like I said, I'll watch a Briscoe Funk match today, and I'll still believe it. Like a like a total mark. <laughs> <laughs> and and there are people today. The current we we have a quote um, in the book that just popped into my head. I think it was Nigel McGinnis talking about um, Samoa Joe against um, Brian Danielson, um, and saying how those guys just worked in such a way that even when you're watching and you know that it's it's a work, you know that. But they put on a match that does not hit you over the head with it. Everything looks like it's real. Everything fits, you know, there's not a lot of open space. They're not pulling their punches. They're not doing a lot of things, you know, trying things that they're not able to do and taking you out of the match. They're doing everything that they can do, and they're doing it very, very well. And you're able to suspend disbelief and just get lost in the match. And and that's, uh, again, one of the things that we think of as a wrestler's wrestler, the people who have the innate ability to do that. And, you know, Briscoe and, and, and Funk have that, but there are people today, there are fewer people, and that's what makes them stand out even more. But, you know, it, it does still, I mean, it's the, the beauty of pro wrestling at its core. And to me, I mean, this is totally subjective, but to me, and, and these are more modern era guys, but Bret Hart, Benoit, and Daniel Bryan, those are the three guys to me, you totally get lost in the fact, you know, that it's a complete working, you know, the suspension of, or suspension of disbelief, and you totally, totally buy into it, and you're like, wow, he's really hurt, or wow, he's really making, you know, Roman Reigns or whoever look better than he's ever looked before. It's like those three guys always stood out to me because they're the ultimate masters. They're just the best at it. And you mentioned Bret Hart in there. Uh, earlier today, Brian was talking about how he, he was watching matches on YouTube. Earlier today, I watched uh, Bret Hart versus Davy Boy Smith from uh, SummerSlam and Wembley Stadium. Uh, babyface versus Babyface. Uh, Bret very rarely wrestled uh, Bulldog in, in singles. They did tag and they did you know wrestle each other years earlier in Calgary. But Bulldog has gotten so much bigger, had a little bit of a different style, um, and and Bret was able to go into the match, kind of play subtle heel, especially when the crowd started, and you could see him doing it. Like you could see him change his approach mid-match. And he didn't overtly become a, a rule-breaker, a heel, um, but he just did little things like he did a move and threw a Davy Boy out of the ring and just kind of stopped for a second, kind of rolled his shoulders back a little bit like he was proud of himself, looked at the fans and kind of, not even a full smirk, but just looked at him for a minute like, yeah, that's your countryman. And uh, nuclear, just, you know, and that's not the kind of thing he was normally doing when he wrestled. But he had this ability to, okay, this is the circumstance. We need the pop for when Davy Boy pins me, so I have to be the heel here. And without completely becoming a, a villain, I just need to be a little bit arrogant to get them on Davy's side. And that stuff, I mean, and that's not even taking into account his technical ability and, and ability to control the pace of that match. But those little nuances and, and, and skills are, are really the difference between a iconic wrestler and everyone else. He is so good. And go back and 
it just they say does this still hold up and stuff like man Brett holds up better than anything I see today he's so good and you go back and you really look at it, it's like he had so many guys best matches Steve Austin's best match Diesel's best match Owen's best match Bulldog's best match perfect Yokozuna one two three kid um, Hakuchi PCO I mean I can go on and on and on he had yeah. all these guys best match it's like this guy is the true master he might be you know the guy who could teach the master class and how to be the master. Yeah, and again, it's it, again, it, it's more than the technical ability. Like I said, it's just that believability, you know. And, and for Brett, and maybe Brett took it too far at times, where you know, uh, he, you know, he everything had to be real, and, and but but he took it seriously, and he came up in in the dungeon and the Hart family and everything, where it was the business, and you had to protect the business, so you had to do your best and, and make it as real as possible. Like Brian was saying, you know, they, they made us believe. So, I mean, that's, again, like you said, if there was a master's class in uh, pro wrestling, I'd love to see Brett teach it. And maybe if, if Brett is uh, not available, then Kurt Angle. I'd love to see that. Brian, you got to watch, and I'm sure you have, King of the Ring 93, Brett's one-night run through Razor Ramon, Mr. Perfect, and Bam Bam, if you, you want to watch some great wrestling. Oh, yeah, I watched a lot of Brett when we were working on this book because, um, like you said, he really is a true master of the craft. I mean, he is one of the greatest performers. You could have put him in any era. He'd have have been over. Um, He could do it as heel. He could do it as babyface. He made you believe. Um, There was that dedication and that work ethic. And another amazing thing about Brett Everybody I spoke to that worked with Brett loved working with him. None of them complained about anything he did. So, you know, he was great to work with, too, according to everybody I spoke to, which is, you know, another thing that goes into being that great. Never hurt anybody, as he always says, right? And he's just uh, yeah. safety, safe to, safe to wrestle. But he made it, it, it look like he wasn't. Yeah, that, that King of the Ring that you mentioned, he had three different matches, completely different styles, the Bigelow match, the Hennig match, everything. But he went, I think, 46 minutes. The other one was Razor Ramon, right? The first yes. round match? Yep. So he was, you know, big man, little man with, with a Razor, a different type of big man, little man with Bigelow, and then the longer match with Hennig. Um, but he went like 46 minutes in three different matches that were all a different style and finished, and the crowd was still hot for him. Uh, it, it, it was so hard to do that and keep the crowd invested, you know, because they've seen everything. And especially in today's style with, you know, spot-heavy matches. If you do all your spots the first time and then you have to do two more matches, well, those spots aren't really going to mean as much, you know. So he, he didn't. Um, he changed things up. He made every match a little bit different. You know, he, he kind of called a lot of those matches and and really have that ability to say, okay, I'm I'm just going to keep the fans' attention and, and tell a, a long-form story tonight and was able to do that better than anyone else. And everyone always talks about SummerSlam 91, Brett versus Perfect, which is awesome. I prefer King of the Ring 93, Brett versus Perfect. I even think that match is better. It's excellent. Yeah, it, well, that one was, they were both uh, babyface, I think, at the yes. King of the Ring. Yep. Uh, but that that's what made it so good. Again, Brett doing kind of the subtle, will he turn heel? Hennig, you know, more subtle than, you know, more than that, he, he really kind of did. Uh, but then at the end, you know, they, they shook hands and, and, and that was it. it, it it's that kind of 
simmering about ready to boil over, and it never quite boils over, but it keeps you, you know, right on the edge of your seat watching it. Yeah, absolutely. And, Brian, another interesting thing about the book is guys that kind of go under the radar are also tag teams. I feel like especially in today's wrestling, nobody kind of appreciates tag team wrestling anymore. Very rarely, but I love that it gets some love in the book because I'm a huge Midnight Express guy, huge Rock and Roll Express guy. I love Tully and Arn. Talk to us a little bit about putting some tag teams in there, too. Well, that uh, i, I got to give credit to Dan because when I think tag teams, you know, I was there for the beginning of the Road Warriors. You know, I remember being a kid having, you know, Hawk and Animal on my, my, my bedroom wall, a poster of the Road Warriors. And I remember wanting to put them in the book, and Dan's like, oh, we're not just putting the Road Warriors. There's a hell of a lot of tag teams that got to go in here. Um. And when I was talking to uh, Bob Roop and was talking about when he tagged with, with Orton, and the way he would talk about difference between being a great tag team and a great singles, and you know, someone like me who's an outsider of the business didn't really understand how different it is and what it took to be a great tag team. Because if you look at it, there's really not been that many you can name in history that were great tag teams that they needed to be in the book. They deserved a place, and and Dan uh, Dan championed the uh, the tag team section of the book big time. So he's probably uh, the one to go to on that. Dan, the man, what do you think? You had to put the tag teams in there, right? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I didn't want. Now there's Greg Oliver and Steve Johnson have, have did a great book. Uh, the Wrestling Hall of Fame, the tag teams, also from ECW Press, maybe came out maybe about 10 years ago. Um, a fantastic book. And, you know, about 400 pages just on the history of tag team wrestling. Um, and I didn't want to, you know, go too deep into that. And, and you know, I, what I want to do is kind of do one chapter where we briefly talked about a lot of different tag teams. Because there are a few, are a few that really kind of changed everything. Uh, you know, it started with the kangaroos, but... You look at the Midnight Express, you look at the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton has his own separate chapter, too, because his his selling was just so um, trend-setting and, and emulated by so many people through the years. Um, for the Bulldogs, and so on, all the teams that were in there, but also teams uh, like um, Patterson and Ray Stevens and others, really just kind of talking about their their influence and how it wasn't just two single guys going out there and doing single guy uh, spots. It was teamwork, cutting the ring in half, um, you know, the heels. Again, we kind of talk about the formula for a match where, you know, there's a, the baby face shine, the cutoff, the heat, the hope spot, the heat, the hope spot, and go to the finish, you know, typical kind of tag match. Um, but these guys were able to play within that, that kind of verse chorus verse structure and make it work and make it unique and different and, and still manage to tell, like I said earlier, kind of a long-form story with tag matches being typically a little bit longer than singles. Um, and, and they really made it so that it didn't get tired out or over the plate. They were able to change those little things and, and keep people invested in it and able to come up in a lot of uh, cases with really, really innovative double-team moves. Double-team moves that we're still seeing people do with, say, uh, Stevens and Patterson and the Midnight Express 40, 30 years later. People are still doing those double-team moves. They may not realize where it came from, but those are the guys that were doing it first and, and really made it 
kind of stand out and become part of just the vernacular, for lack of a better term, of pro wrestling. And, and to add to that, the great thing about tag team wrestling is it goes back to they made us believe in a way. Because tag team wrestling can be very formula as well. You knew at some point the babyface team was going to have the hot tag and it was going to, you know, pop. And every fan had to know it was coming. But if you go back and watch video of some of those great tag matches, the pop they get from the crowd when that tag is made blows the roof off of the place. That's, you know, you know it's coming and it still gets that reaction. That's impressive. I agree. They almost, you know, get so invested in the match that they're not seeing the hot tag. They might have been thinking about it earlier, but they completely forget because of the selling going on and you know, maybe some chicanery, getting the ref involved, and they fall for you know, hook, line, excuse me, hook, line, and sinker. They just love that hot tag. Yeah, they explode. It's And it's a genuine, you know, it's a genuine pop that when that audience just goes berserk, that that's not an applause sign blinking, telling people to cheer. I mean, it's genuine, and that's that's the magic of it. Now, Dan, you also kind of include the quote unquote job guys or the enhancement guys, or you know the like as you guys kind of refer to the thankless, right? The thankless but vital guys. Is that kind yeah. of important to put in there too? Because those guys often will get overlooked even more so than some of the guys who were mentioned. I mean, they'll really get overlooked. Yeah, I mean, really, they, they deserve a book of their own, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, a job guy is a guy, and there's a lot of different kind of degrees with this, but you, you go in there to put somebody over. Um, you, especially back during the kind of heyday of job guys, a lot of the so-called job guys today our undercard guys, they get a little bit of a push. They get a little bit of character and TV time, but they're not really getting a, you know, they're mostly putting other people over. Back in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, even into the early 2000s, you had guys that were showing up on TV that they, they had no chance of getting signed. They, they were normally out of shape. They, and even if they were in shape, um, because they were not signed and they weren't being pushed, um, the agents had them tone everything down. It's like, hey, you know, you... You've got this flashy blonde hair, uh, you know, cut that and maybe we can use you. Um, you know, I, I love the boots. They're, they're customized, they're personalized. Get a pair of generic boots and maybe we can use you because you're not the feature. You, you're here to make that guy look good. We don't want people looking at you other than to see you kind of get your, your last beat. Um, but those are the guys who would go in and just, you know, sometimes they called the match, uh, you know, because they're, they're the veterans in, in some cases. Uh, they're they're going to get squashed, but they know what it takes. They go and, and tell them what's do. Other times, they just kind of listen to direction. Uh, sometimes, you know, they were very skilled workers who just knew that they were never going to get a push, or they didn't want to travel. They didn't want to have to do the, the rigors of the road. So they, they stayed in one location. They loved wrestling, so they just were kind of weekend warriors. They, they did their tapings, and they made their money, and, and a lot of the boys loved them because, you know, they, they made them look good. And they didn't have to sell for the job guys. They just had to go out there and show off their offense. And it was the job guy's ability to make their offense look terrific. So, of course, they loved it. Um, but, again, that little, those were the guys who could have gone out there and really ruined somebody. You know, your debut in a company, you've got a job guy, an enhancement match. And if that guy sandbagged and just made you look terrible, then 
that's what the viewers are going to see. That's that's their first impression of you. Is is you just went out there and you had to tear their mattress into it. Um, and so they have that kind of power to really make somebody look good or, or kind of ruin them. So um, really, a generation for two generations, the guys were built on the job guys. The job guys made people interested. They helped them take notice of the talent that was getting a push and made them want to see the guys that were higher up on the card. And that's really the, the fundamentals of, of building interest in wrestling. So for a, a long period of time with the way wrestling was done, you couldn't have introduced new people. You couldn't have done weekly TV without enhancement talent. And uh, a lot of those guys, you know, you don't get a lot of wrestling history books that talk about bad boy Barry Hardy. And you should, because guys like him will really kind of be uh, the ground level of pro wrestling. I love me some George Dallas. That's one of my favorite guys. <laughs> of course, of course. It's a 40-minute match against Ric Flair in TBS. I mean, it, that was a match that, you know, Flair himself requested, you know, because George was so respected by the boys and everything. He wanted to wrestle him. And they did that match on TBS and, and had, me included, watching at the time, you know, as a, I don't know, 14, 15-year-old, however old I was, thinking that George South was really about to win the world title, you know, because... Flair made him look that good. He looked that good himself, and you know that, that's the story that they wanted to tell. So it was uh, very, very, uh, very cool. They won a Flair's favorite opponent, not even like favorite quote unquote enhancement guys, favorite opponents. Period. So it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, often overlooked, you know, a guy like the Italian Stallion or Barry Horowitz, or like you have in the book One Two Three Kid when he was kind of first coming up. Uh, a lot of good ones, a ton of good ones. And there was somebody that, because, you know, people could just do little things and they could get over. And, and, you know, Reno Riggins. I remember Reno Riggins doing a match around 92, 93. I don't know who he was wrestling. It might have been Kurt Henney. I don't think it was, though. I, I think that's what made it funny. Was he hooked a guy in, for a suplex, and he just yells, now you're going to see a Reno-plex. And then whoever it was, we countered the move and, and hit the finish, whatever. Just the little Barry Horowitz with patting himself on the back and you know, the Mulkies, just being the Mulkies. And, you know, they, they added a little bit of color and and were remembered because of it. You know, uh, Johnny Canine doing his little kind of drop down and, and hands up over his head, kind of pose. And Barry O and, and so many of those guys. Um, you know, Frankie Williams just showing up on uh, Piper's Pit. Piper's Pit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I watched that apart. last night, too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they, they had a little bit of, of of color, and they added a little bit to the the program. And uh, I, I remember a lot of them very fondly. Great stuff. Love those guys. Very key role in in the business. But Brian, as far as the interviews and stuff, I know you guys did over forty interviews for the book. Who else kind of did you interview? And was there like a selection process on who you want to interview and why you wanted to interview them? When we first sat down uh, and talked about it, we came up with a list of, you know, 40 or 50 people we really wanted to talk to. And, uh, you know, some of them were like, okay, here's our wish list. How it worked out is, you know, Dan's got some great connections from being with PWI all those years and, you know, being one of the, you know, truly respected guys on the, on the journalism side of the game. And, I had the advantage of being an outsider. So a lot of guys were willing to talk to me because they didn't have to, you know, 
play up like they normally would to someone on the inside. And I would be lucky enough to talk to someone, and then they would tell other people, hey, this guy's okay to talk to. Um, and it kind of steamrolled from there. I remember I, w- I was reaching out to people. I was looking up everybody I could on, like, Facebook Messenger and sending them a message saying, hi, I'm writing a book. Do you want to talk? And, you know, some of them said yes. And after you would talk to a couple of them, they would tell other people, hey, this guy's okay to talk to, and this guy's good to talk to. And uh, I made some great friends through it, um, which is which is fantastic. I mean, I uh, for the past year and a half, I've talked to Terry Funk two to three times a week because of this book. Um, I formed a really great friendship with uh, Buddy Colt, who we sadly lost uh, right before the book went to publication. Buddy passed away. And, um, you know, those guys were great to talk to because everybody gave us a different, just a different perspective and a different angle and a different look at it. Um, you know, they, they were phenomenal. Everybody was incredible to talk to that we, that we did. Um, a lot of people we talked to because other people recommended them. You know, I remember, you know, talking to, um, uh, Bob Roop and him saying, oh, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to this guy. And then I would talk to them and they'd say, you know who you should talk to? <laughs> and it, it kind of went from there. And uh, it was it was just such a, it was the most fun project I've ever worked on. And I, I, uh, I, I'm going to cherish the memories of working on this project. It was, it was incredible. How about selecting well, the sinister minister for the uh, board? That's all Dan. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to say quickly that to add on to the, the interviews, we, we tried to do a, a big cross section. You know, as many people from as many areas and as many promotions as we were able to talk to, but also people who would give us good information. You know, there are a lot of interviewers or a lot of wrestlers who just kind of, you know, they say the same interview each time. They're, they're more interested in talking about themselves than, than talking about other people, um, which we didn't really want. We wanted people to talk about their opponents and so on. It was this kind of synergy, too, or synchronicity, maybe. I remember going to, well, uh, well, Clearwater. I was on a family vacation, and uh, we're walking down the street in Clearwater when we pass uh, the old Hulk Hogan's beach shop. Uh, they're kind of moving to a new location. Oh, this is kind of cool. You know, it's, it's you know, what are the odds? And a wrestling writer would just stumble across Hulk Hogan's beach shop. And I looked, and there's a gym upstairs, and the gym was being managed by Bushwhacker Luke. And I was, okay. So I, I, you know, hey, you know, tell my girlfriend and the kids, give me five minutes, let me just go upstairs. Knock on the door. Uh, is Luke here? Yeah, he is. Luke comes over. Hey, I'm doing this book. You know, I'm pro wrestling illustrator, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, I sit with him for like an hour and a half, and we're telling Luke stories about him against the Fantastics and things like that. It's just such a great thing when these guys kind of open up and just say, hey, you know. And, um, meanwhile, I'm kind of looking at my watch like, hey, i got to get back. My girlfriend and the kids are downstairs still waiting for me. i got to get out of here. <laughs> I haven't come up and work out in the gym, you know. But, uh, I'm sorry, you were to, oh, Sinister Minister, that's your question. Um, to be perfectly honest, I was looking at a few people for the, the forward. I had a couple of candidates. I was thinking maybe Jim Cornette would be good. Um, he, he's got a passion for the history of wrestling, and uh, he, he would appreciate some of the, the content of this book. Um, maybe somebody like William Regal would be good. Uh, he, he's somebody I hold in this very high regard, and with his position in NXT, he might be a, a real good person to, to kind of, um, you know, speak about this. 
And then I thought of the Sinister Master, who I, I got to meet um, during his UCW run when I was a pro wrestling illustrator. And what I've always liked about the minister is he, he says what's on his mind. And he's very intelligent and thoughtful, and, and he would he would kind of, well, I thought he would uh, approach this and with some insight and would really kind of think, you know what, I, I want to do this in, in time and, and not just kind of, you know, do a promo, for lack of a better term, but really kind of write something insightful. Uh, so when we went to him, he was happy to do it and turned it around pretty quickly. And uh, it, it's just kind of interesting, too, because the, the Sinister Minister is not somebody you think of as a wrestler's wrestler. He, he wasn't even a wrestler. He's a manager. He's always been kind of a gimmick manager. But he's got a great mind for the business. And he talks about his younger days and his fandom and his perception of what wrestling was and how it changed from territory to territory, um, which I thought just really kind of gave some, some depth and color uh, as a forward. So, uh, you know, I loved the Sinister Minister. I think Jim did a great job with it. Very happy that he was involved with this. It's funny, you're right, because it doesn't come off like, oh, this guy, you know, he's a satanic gimmick, like the gimmick itself, but he's a bit of a wrestling historian. So, I mean, obviously, he, know, he knows his stuff, but at first, you're like, James Mitchell, interesting, interesting choice. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm glad. Again, we wanted to, I mean, I, I could have done, we could have done Kurt Angle or somebody who's in the book or, or somebody who's not in the book, uh, maybe a Chris Jericho or something, because we, we don't profile him. Um, and in fact, he has a quote, because I, I did interview him for the book, where he says he thinks of the term a wrestler's wrestler is kind of a, a backhanded insult. You know, where it's like, oh, so I'm, I'm a wrestler's wrestler, which means that I can get over with the boys, but I'm not a main event guy, I'm not a big draw on my own. Which, again, is, is kind of one possible perception of the phrase. Uh, but no, I thought that he was a little bit different and insightful enough, and I thought that, to be perfectly blunt, I thought he could... Uh, he could do a better job than most of the other people I thought of. So uh, I'm very happy he did. Brian, when you break it down and you look at everybody in the book, who's kind of like the most favorite guy? You know, you get to write about it, you get to cover, or you get to explore further and maybe watch the matches and do a little bit of history lesson on them. I mean, obviously Terry, because of the friendship I developed with him, Terry Funk. Um, But I think overall the – Wow, that's such a good question because there's so many of them. Um, but I really, really got excited uh, watching Kurt Angle matches because Dan would praise Angle so much. And, and you know, Kurt was big in an era when I wasn't watching wrestling. So every time I turned on a Kurt Angle match, it was brand new to me. And uh, that's been fun. That's been that's been great to uh, to watch as a performer. As far as learning more about Sputnik Monroe, uh, his history, I don't want to give it away. It's all in the book, but um, it's one of the most interesting stories in the history of pro wrestling. Let's put it that way. Now, a buddy of mine said this to me, and I kind of agree a little bit, but obviously you can't have him on the cover. But he's like, I wonder why Benoit is not on the cover. And I said, well, I don't know if you can really kind of Put him obviously needs to be in the book, but was there ever any thought of putting Benoit on the cover? Well, I I, I want to say something about Benoit being in the book, and we knew that that had the potential to have some controversy, backlash. Yeah, and we decided that you can't not include him 
Obviously, we're not condoning what happened, what he did, the legacy, but what he did as a performer, which is what the book is about, you can't take him off the list. And I remember when we said we were putting him in there, and some people were like, mm, are you sure about that? I, I put it this way. Dan and I are both from Buffalo, New York. If someone's writing a book about the greatest Buffalo Bills in history, O.J. Simpson's in the book. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yep. And that's how I felt about Benoit. You can't do a book about the great wrestlers without him being in there. As far as putting him on the cover, um, I think it would have been great from a publicity standpoint that we probably would have had protests everywhere the book was sold. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm all about Ballyhoo and, uh, and P.T. Barnum exploitation. But, um, yeah, I don't think that would have flown putting him on the cover. Yeah, that's what I told my buddy. I don't know about that. I was like, it might be pushing it a little much. But I, I said, he is in the book. So obviously, you know, he knew that. But um, I, obviously, you can't have the book without him to me, especially talking about modern day guys. My God, he was, uh, everything else aside, easily one of the best. Easily. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ben Wallace, I mean, it's terrible everything, obviously. You know, it goes without saying it's terrible everything that happened, everything. But for, for 15 years, he was one of my, he was probably my favorite guy to watch. Um, you know, he never had a bad match. He was just, you know, his footwork, his timing, his, his facials and expressions, everything was just fantastic. And his execution of all of his moves, the suplexes, the dives, everything, just so crisp, no wasted movement, and just so fundamentally sound. Um, Getting him on the cover, you know, honestly, the cover of the book, um, we went back and forth with a few different designs. Um, it is a little bit of a, a wordy title that we came up with. You know, the wrestlers, wrestlers, the masters of the craft of pro wrestling. And then after that, it's two authors, so it's Dan Murphy and Brian Young. And then we also want to include that there's a forward by the Sinister Minister. So it's a lot of text to include. And now, in terms of how do you... I thought maybe we'll have a picture of, say, William Regal against Chris Benoit in a match from WCW because those are two guys that I think of as kind of quintessential modern-day wrestlers' wrestlers. But then I thought, well, maybe that'll date the book to, like, 97, 98, and people won't. And, and because we're looking from the 30s up until now, you know, how do you really do that? And uh, the, uh, the, uh, the graphic artists at ECW Press came back uh, with a few different mock-ups, but the one that we settled on has, you know, the text and has just four or five wrestlers scattered on there. You're going to Brett, Kurt Angle, Harley Race, Daniel Bryan, and Lou Fez. And I thought, you know, that's that's it. Like, those those are guys that are, you know, worthy of the spot, and it's timeless. And Benoit just wasn't one of the ones that was selected, and, uh, you know, I can't really make a case to replace anyone who was with, with him. So that's how it kind of worked out. Dan, favorite guy for uh, for covering in the book? Well, uh, there's a few. I mean, I really got into Kurt Enning when I was uh, writing Kurt's uh, bio. Uh, as Brian mentioned, uh, Kurt Angle is is just probably my favorite all time uh, fundamental wrestler. Um, but the one that I'm kind of into a little bit more now and, and kind of going through a bit of a, a spell, uh, Ray Stevens, footballer uh, Ray Stevens, and just watching him bump and, and watching a lot of things he does, and just thinking of how so many modern wrestlers would be, you know, uh, well-advised to look back at guys like Ray Stevens. And if you want to steal spots, steal them from him. Like, he, he was fantastic, and his stuff is timeless. Um, but I think that the nature of this book and, and my appreciation of kind of the art of wrestling 
um, means that every few weeks I'll probably have a different favorite from uh, from the people that we covered because I think all their work is just so terrific and uh, worth watching and rewatching. Nice. Absolutely. I love it. Now, guys, as we hit the wind down, head towards the finish, Brian, what do you got else? Like, what's coming down the pike? You got any other wrestling-related projects you're working on? I'm actually working on two projects now, neither of which are wrestling-related. One is boxing-related. One is Jack the Ripper-related. Um, I would love to do another wrestling project, though. Uh, like I said, this totally made me fall in love with the game again. And, you know, working with Dan, I've known Dan as a friend forever. Um, but to actually work with someone who is so respected and, and revered in the industry and to actually become a part of that was just, it was an honor. It was a thrill and an honor. And I've told him this before, and he always tells me, oh, stop it, because Dan's a very humble guy. But uh, it, it really was. It was thrilling, and it was exciting. And, you know, I'd love to do something else with Dan on wrestling or just a, a wrestling project. Uh, you know, I'd love to do something because it's, a, it's as a historian, it's one of those great, it's just so filled with such a rich history and so much fun. And you can go with the exploitation angle and you can go with the, 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 the talent angle and you can go with the, the showbiz angle. And it's just, it's got something for everyone. And, and, and like when we say in the book, wrestling is a very unique art form because it doesn't cater to any particular age, race, gender, creed, anything. Everybody across the board and across the spectrum are wrestling fans. And the man. Give us one last kind of push for the book and where everybody can get it. Well, you can buy it anywhere that quality books are sold. Uh, obviously, Amazon, you can get through ecwpress.com. Um, any bookstore, it just officially was released uh, April 27th, I believe, so a little over a week ago. Um, by this point, it should be just about everywhere. Um, you can also... Uh, find me. Uh, I don't really do Twitter, but I am on Facebook. Uh, you know, Dan Murphy. If you can find anyone who's got pro wrestling friends on Facebook, that's you know, they're probably attached to me. Whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, you can find the book anywhere. And again, I, I think that it's a great book for current fans, for historians, and really for anyone who involved in the inner workings of, of pro wrestling. Um, one of the questions I ask everyone that we interviewed is. You know, if a a student, a wrestling trainee came up to you today and said, uh, who should I study? Whose matches should I watch to become a better wrestler? Who would you tell them to watch? And all those results are in the book. So you have some of the greatest minds in wrestling talking about, this is the guy you got to check out. This is the guy who is head and shoulders better than everyone else. This is the guy who made the people around him that much better. And And that's something that is so important for wrestlers to, to learn, but also for the fans to understand and for historians to kind of realize as well. So I hope this book really kind of appeals to anyone who's interested in wrestling. Uh, it's available everywhere, and you can contact myself or, or Brian on Facebook if you can find us. And uh, if you can't find the book anywhere, let us know, and, and we'll make sure we get you a copy. Brian, you got any other plugs you want to throw out there? Um, you know, I, I myself have a podcast, uh, history podcast called Transatlantic History Ramblings, co-hosted with uh, the amazing Lauren Davies out of Swansea, Wales in the UK. And our latest episode, which actually just came out today, features Dan. Um, hey, look at that. <laughs> and, yeah. 
but uh, it's a it's a history show, so don't expect much wrestling on it. It's we we cover topics ranging from you know science to ancient history to prehistoric history to modern history. Any basically anything we want to talk about, we do. And uh, it's a fun show, Transatlantic History Ramblings. It's available anywhere you can get podcasts. Brian, I got to ask this: Where do you do voiceover work? You got to be doing voiceover work somewhere. Uh, yeah, um, I, I've been asked recently to, um, although everybody says it's weird. He sounds just like John Goodman, which I don't hear, but a little apparently, um, I, I have been asked, uh, since the, since I've been doing the podcast, I've been asked to do some narration and voiceover work, but nothing, nothing yet. Nothing in granite. I knew. But it. if you need I, someone to do some commercials for your show or something or any <laughs> voiceover work for projects, yeah, you know, I'm always yeah. available. Nice. I knew it, though. I could tell by the voice. I had a feeling. The book is awesome. The Wrestlers, Wrestlers, The Masters of the Craft of Professional Wrestling. I absolutely love it. One of the best books of the year, and there's been so many good books this year. So, I mean, that's high praise for you guys. Just awesome stuff. Thank you so much for all the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank Thank you. you. It's been a pleasure. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies brother.